turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Today we'll be in chapter 4 as we continue going through this wonderful historical book that explains so much about God's redemptive plan. To bring everyone up to speed, God's prophet, priest, and really the last judge, Samuel, has died. King Saul and his son Jonathan are dead, killed in the battle with the Philistines. And God's promise to David to be the Lord's chosen king is still in the process of being fulfilled. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, David heard of Saul and Jonathan's death from a man who was trying to get a reward for himself, and he even lied about what really happened. David had him executed, saying, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed, in chapter 1, verse 16 of 2 Samuel. David deeply mourned the deaths of Saul and Jonathan and wrote a lament to be taught to the people so that they'd remember what the Philistines had done to their king. David knew that Israel was not through dealing with the Philistines. And this lament was written a written expression of thoughtful grief. And we can learn much about good ways to express and deal with grief in looking at that lament. We also gain an appreciation for the friendship between David and Jonathan, Saul's son. That Jonathan would respect and befriend the man that he knew God had chosen to be the next king instead of himself as King Saul's son tells us so much about the character of Jonathan. But most of all, who Jonathan trusted and believed. God Almighty. Jonathan was caught between his father, King Saul, and David. Saul, who was trying to kill David, and David, the man Jonathan made a covenant of friendship with, yet Jonathan managed by God's grace to respect both his father Saul and his friend David. Jonathan died at Saul's side in that battle with the Philistines. It's hard to imagine then how much David must have grieved over Jonathan's death. David surely saw in Jonathan the rarest of friends, one who could trust and believe and support God's revealed purposes, which is what these two guys had so much in common, which put him, David, in the hardest of difficult circumstances. Brothers in arms, but more important, brothers who desired and believed in God's promise. And they did that together. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 2, David is anointed king, but here he's only anointed king over one tribe of Israel's 12 tribes. Saul's army commander, And his cousin, Abner, makes a power play of his own by 
making another of Saul's sons king over the rest of Israel's tribes. And that guy's name is Ishbosheth. Civil war ensues, and Abner kills David's army commander's brother, Asahel, in battle. We've got to keep all these people straight as we go through here. Abner had to kill him, actually, because Asahel was pursuing him. He's um, characterized here in the text as a very swift runner. And Abner wanted him to back off, and he wouldn't. This was the end of the battle, and, and Abner killed him. We're going to see what that does to Joab, Asahel's brother. In chapter 3, this long war for control continues with David gaining more and more strength. And the house of Saul, in other words, Ishboth, Sheth, this younger son who had been put in power by Abner, is weakening. And Abner sees the writing on the wall and begins a campaign of trying to switch sides to David, whom he knows God promised the throne to. That's the key point. Abner is granted peace by David, meaning that David gave him safe conduct, but Joab Uh, wouldn't go along with that decree. He sees a threat to his own position as David's army commander and, and uses that as an excuse to avenge his brother Asahel. So Joab murders David without David even knowing anything about. And now David shows his leadership and his godly way of looking at the role that God's given him by mourning for Abner, who, remember, had been Saul's army commander and so had been a major player in David trying to kill him. One of the results of how David handled this whole situation, an explosive situation, is seen at the end of chapter 3, verses 36 and 37. We read there, and all the people took notice of it. We would too. This is not normal politics. And it pleased them as everything that the king David did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner to death. And that's important. So now we come to chapter 4. It's a shorter chapter. And Ishbosheth is in a very precarious position in this chapter. So if you are able, would you please stand as I read 2 Samuel chapter 4? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin, 
The Beorath floods to Gittim and have been sojourners there to this day. It's a little history lesson in the middle. We'll see why. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimon the Beorite, this is Rechab and Baanah, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Behanah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baanah's brother, the sons of Rimnon the Beerite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for this news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tube of Abner at Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to the Lord. God, you may be seated. Sorry. Got too excited there. There's nothing going on in this chapter, is there? In verse 1, the first thing we see is a very graphic picture of Ishbosheth's reaction to the news of Abner's death. We read, his courage failed, and all of Israel was dismayed. Ishbosheth's protector, the man who had actually put him in power, and his army commander was now gone. He's feeling really lonely. His courage failed. This is a great phrase that that is a picture of his hands dropped and just went slack. Hebrew is so graphic. It's a great way to understand the feeling involved here. This is a picture of loss of hope. It's a picture of a man who has resigned himself to whatever is coming. And you can tell from his body language. In other words... Ishbosheth is giving himself over to grief and despair without any resistance on his part. He's given up. 
how could the foolish and really power-hungry Ishbosheth ever understand that David just would not clean Saul's house in a bloody fashion like most kings would do. David would not employ some plan of reprisals that would wipe out everybody who had opposed him. And Ishbosheth should know this because David's already demonstrated this characteristic several times. But you know, when you're all alone and the guy that put you into power, this mighty warrior Abner, is dead, all that just flies out. He's terrified. We read also that all of Israel was dismayed. And what's this a picture of? It's a picture of being terrified by what they feared could happen next. The unrest, the question marks about who's really in power. What's going to happen now? The Philistines are still out there, probably regrouping. What are we going to do? Our leadership is so messed up. Sound familiar? Well, in verses 2 and 3, we see that Ishbosheth was really fearing the wrong person, David. He's not who he needs to worry about. We're introduced and said to two of his captains. These two verses give details of these brothers, Baanah and Rechab, who were captains in Ishbosheth's forces. And what's being established here in this explanation is that Baanah and Rechab were Ishbosheth's own men and part of Saul's own tribe. What tribe was that? Benjamin. So we hear, and we get right here as we read this, that something is brewing. Now we just read it so we know what's brewing. But as we go through this, we've got to We've got to try to follow, follow what's happening step by step. And then in verse 4, out of nowhere, we're introduced to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And we'll hear a lot about him later and what David does for him. He was crippled at five years old. When the news came about Jonathan and Saul dying in the battle with the Philistines. So obviously, this is Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, and the nurse that was taking care of him, they were, fearing, they were running for their lives. Because the Philistines obviously were all over the territory. And they didn't know if they knew where this son was this grandson of Saul. So she took him up and fled, and we read as she fled in her haste, he fell and he became lame. And we were asking, well, why is this, why is this information right here? Well, there is a very good reason, because what the author is doing here is he's trying to impress upon us, the readers, the total weakness of Saul's house which he says, David's house is growing stronger, the house of Saul 
is growing weaker. What do I mean? Okay, just let's look at what we know. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, lacks the courage to resist David's growing strength any further. And the only other heir that we know about is Mephibosheth, who lacks the ability to do anything about it, since he's a totally dependent little boy who's crippled. So sandwiched between this lack of courage of one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and the lack of ability of Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, is the introduction to Baanah and Rehab. Are you following this? The weakness of Saul's house, who we've already read, will demonstrate their complete lack of wisdom and understanding as they attempt to solve their perceived problem of being on David's hit list. Everybody's running around scared to death because David's rising in power and they aren't on David's side. So these two guys come up with this great plan that's almost an exact repeat of something that's already happened at the beginning of this book. And in verses 5 through 7, notice that the account, what happens, is told twice. In verses 5 and 6, and then verse 7 is a recap. It's a summary of what we just read happened in 5 and 6 with a few more details. And what's a detail that we find out in verse 7 that's important? They beheaded Ishbosheth. Now, there's three common details in these verses. First, Rechab and Baanah went into Ishbosheth's house. Ishbosheth was asleep, and they stabbed him and struck him, killing him. And I don't know whether you picked this up or not. I tried to do it by the tone in which I read it. But this text is dripping with sarcasm. Why? Because Rechab and Bana appear so bold and daring. That's how they're looking at themselves. But they're really weak, not strong. They're cowardly. They're not courageous. They're mercenary, not even manly. They snuck up on a man, their own king, while he was sleeping, murdered him, and then snuck out with his head as a trophy. Boy, that's bold and daring. In verse 8, after a very long trip, remember everything's on foot through the hill country, they took Ishbosheth's head to David. And what did they say? First is the fact that David is looking at. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. Your enemy, 
who sought your life. And David, yep, that is Isbosheth's head, no doubt about it. Then is their interpretation of what they've done. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and his offspring. In other words, David, this is the Lord's vengeance upon Saul and his heir. Did you catch that? It's the Lord's vengeance. We are the servants of the Lord in executing justice by eliminating your rival and solidifying your position. And because God has used us to be the ones to rid you, David, of your opposition, we deserve to be rewarded with position and privilege. They come with blood on their hands, but what's on their lips? Did you notice all the theology that's in this? What were they trying to do? How were they trying to rationalize what they did? They were expecting this theology to bleach out the blood. Murder, or really any sin, always seems more pleasant when it's wrapped in religious considerations. And you know what? The bayonets and recabs are still with us today, and some are in our churches. Their method is to use theology to cover sin and foolishness. And for people like this, theology is not truth that drives them to worship God, but a technique that enables them to justify themselves. And just because they use theology... Some things that may be true doesn't mean that they're applying them correctly at all. One commentator gave these two examples, and this was written not that long ago, and is probably applicable during most time periods in history. First, we may recognize these kind of people in the self-appointed defender of, doctor, of doctrinal precision. And notice, we may but you'll see why. This person is eager to explain and correct and inform, but with all harshness and severity. If accosted about his stringent style, he argues theologically. He's only concerned that we hold to the whole counsel of God, which is really important, but how you do it is also really important. The slightest indifference on doctrinal matters may begin the plunge to unbelief. And we see many people who have suffered. You may know some. You may be one in a congregation where that kind of lording it over is demonstrated. Jesus warns us about the attitude. Or suppose the church elders begin an informal or formal discipline process for an erring and stubbornly unlistening church member, which is what 
leadership elders are supposed to do because of the care of the sheep. What will the elders hear? Well, many times it's quote-unquote theology about how all of us are sinners, but God is compassionate, certainly more so than you elders. And who gave you the right to, to assess my life anyway? Well, any elders who endeavor to do that, which is commanded by God to care for the sheep and all sorts of different ways, are usually quaking in their boots and on their knees for days and days and days before they bring up anything like that because they know that their own hearts are prone to wander as well. But in this case, you see what's going on? These kind of people are usually not functionally accountable to the body of Christ, but only themselves. And you usually don't find that out until something like this comes up. And if there is accountability, they're usually, or these people usually have handpicked the people that they can get their way with. Especially if the person that isn't being accountable and needs to be questioned is one of the leaders. But still, there's all these power games going on in so many places. Or this person may be, or these people may be far enough away that they don't really know what's going on, so they think that they can pontificate on anything. In other words, they can say whatever they want and not be accountable to anybody. They can operate the way they want and not be accountable to anybody, which is why God put this in a church. In the first place, we need, we need to be accountable to one another. In other words, either of the extremes that we've mentioned here, these two, um, sees himself as a law only to himself. And he uses parts of theology to justify himself. Usually the parts that he wants to champion. And we must be alert then. We must use theology as the gift of God to us not abuse God's revelation to us as an argument or by manipulating, trying to manipulate God for our own convenience to keep from submitting to his grace or his law. And that's always what it boils down to. I'm not really answerable to anybody. You can't say anything to me. Well, that's not how God set it up. And these guys approached David thinking that they just won some points. They thought this was God's way of dealing with it. How many times had David had an opportunity to get rid himself of Saul? In caves, when he was sleeping at a camp, and David would not touch God's anointed because he knew God wanted him to wait, that God would bring him into power in his own time. And all these people that we're talking about knew that God had chosen David to be the next king. But they were circumventing what they knew God wanted, trying to get their own guy into power. It's a messed up situation. We live in a messed up world. In verse 9, 
we see the real reason for David's ability to stay grounded amidst all this conniving and manipulating. Do you feel manipulated? Are you sick of conniving? There's only really one way to operate in the middle of it and have peace. And it starts with being grateful to God. He knows. David knows and is grateful for the Lord's protection. So he knows he doesn't need theological mercenaries to make something happen that God has promised will happen. Look at verse 9. This is how he begins his answer to Rechab and Bana. And it is telling. David answered Rechab and Benaiah, his brother, the sons of Rimon of Berite, the Berothite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. He knows God. He knows God's grace. He knows God's protection. He is trusting in God to keep his promises. And because he is grateful to God for that, he is able to stay grounded in the middle of all this political maneuvering, bloodshed, conniving, and people wanting to get next to him so they could have something later when he's king. And that's how you and I are supposed to walk amidst it all, too. Because everybody's touched this way in some small or great fashion. Why isn't David tempted to see Rechab and Baana as God's instruments for accomplishing his purpose. So do we see David just being fake in front of all his men by the Lord, the Lord lives, who has delivered me, who has redeemed my life? Was that fake? And then he goes behind the tent curtain and says, man, am I glad those guys really came here and got rid of him. No, we don't see any of that. David isn't tempted by this because of lots of reasons, but how about a list here? I'll give you a small list. First, murder can't be rationalized. Second, the end does not justify the means. Third, because David's gratitude to God is based on his correct assessment of who God is. Not this misunderstanding that these two guys had. And last, because David, even at this stage of his life, I mean, he's not king yet over the whole nation, has already seen God rescue him from every one of his troubles, so he is not fooled into giving evil man, men credit for the deliverance of a gracious God. In other words, David's not playing any angles here. You know, I read something this week that summed this up this way, and this is a soundbite that's worthy of being remembered because we see it here in our text. Gratefulness cultivates faithfulness. 
That's this chapter. That's the message we see here as it points to Christ, the future Davidic king who did rule perfectly, live perfectly on earth and will rule, will get rid of injustice, will be just, and it will be demonstrated later. That's who all this is pointing to. Gratitude cultivates faithfulness to God. And this has always been the case for God's people. Always. And if you're not grateful for what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, shedding his blood for you after living the perfect life that's demanded of us, so that he could shed his blood for us, so that we could know God so that we could have our sins forgiven, so that we could have peace in our hearts, knowing that where we will be forever and ever, that our hope is sure. If that gratitude is not there, then you will be more susceptible to all this manipulation and lying and cloak and dagger stuff about any temptation in your life. You know, there are stories after stories after stories of some simple person in some nowhere kind of place who stands firm simply in faithfulness in the face of all sorts of stuff going on around them. And they answer questions about why can you do this and they come out with something like, because it's the right thing to do. Because this was who I am. I belong to God. What else can I do? What are they saying? What else can I do because he's done this for me? It's not hard. It's simple. And these other, you know, strategists and all of us who, you know, have all these things that we've been thinking about way too much a lot of times, we're the ones who get drawn into this and drawn into this and we wonder why this is happening in my life. And why didn't I understand this? Because we're not really grateful, first and foremost, for what Christ has done. There's a historical example that's pretty, pretty uh, powerful. That was a, a man of God in 155 A.D. Polycarp of Smyrna recognize that city, was brought before the authorities and required to call Caesar Lord. And if he refused, guess what happened? would happen to him? He would be fed to the wild beast in the nearest Roman arena. Polycarp replied, and this is why this has been passed down for centuries and centuries. This is because it's, it's just so simple. He replied, sin for the wild beast. No debate, no agony, no agonizing despair, not weighing his choices. Sin for the wild beast. And then the consul told Polycarp that he would, if he would just curse Christ, he would be released. Polycarp's 
reply then still rings loud and clear. It's a little longer than Sin for the Beast, but it's not that long. He said, Eighty and six years I have served Christ. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? If I make it to 86, which is probably doubtful, I hope after whatever years God still grants me that I could say something like that. It's called you know who you belong to and why. No doubt about it. Gratitude cultivates faithfulness. Gratitude. And then in verses 10 and 12, through 12, David's opening statement of gratitude to the faithful God begins this summary judgment of Rehab and Baana. Remember, he is a king. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, and David even recounts a very similar situation from earlier in chapter 1. He tells that story right here to these guys. David didn't appreciate the supposed good news of, this, of the Amalekite who supposedly killed Saul, and he certainly didn't relish Rahab and, I mean, Rehab and Baana's trophy of Ishbosheth's head. David then executed justice by executing Rehab and Baana. They were killed, their hands and feet were cut off, and their bodies were hung beside the pool at Hebron. You might think of Deuteronomy 21, 23, for a hanged man is cursed of God. And this is in, don't miss this, because we're upset or disturbed by this execution of a king whose job it was to execute justice. But in direct contrast to what happened, what he did to these two guys, what did David do with the head of Ishbosheth? David's young men took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Exactly the opposite. Simple justice is what this is. And this should be, should be, check your heart here. This should be very encouraging for all of us. If you're disturbed about this, something's wrong. This should be encouraging. Why? Because David's promised descendant, the Christ, will bring justice in his time. And this points to his justice that is coming. It's what these Old Testament texts do. They point to Christ. It's all about Christ. Remember the two guys on the road? After Christ was crucified and Christ appeared to him, walked along, they didn't know who he was, what did he do? He explained the Old Testament scriptures and he said they were all about him. Poof, he's gone. This is one of those texts, but that's what the Old Testament does. We need to hold on to this promise and hope that Christ will bring justice. In his time, he will bring it. God knows how much pressure there is in our sinful world. 
to respond to all the injustices that we see, especially to the church, with despair and discouragement, or trying to be Peter's great, 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 great sword bearer and execute it right then. It's not our job. And we get so in despair and discouragement that we look like Ishbosheth. We just drop our hands. There is no hope. It's all rotten. It's not going to get better. Folks, lift your head. Look to your Savior. You belong to Him. He knows what's going on. And He will make it right someday. We may not live to see it, but He's going to make it right someday. We belong to Him. We don't belong here. Our citizenship's there. It's not really here. We're here for a reason. It's to point out who He is. To lift him up. Or, instead of just getting into despair, we could give up and be Abner and join the other side. Although Abner was trying to get finally on the right side, but he was still doing it for the wrong reason. Psalm 125, verse 3 says, The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Interesting. We cannot use our present circumstances to question and doubt and disbelieve. God's goodness and faithfulness. We cannot question and doubt and disbelieve God's goodness and faithfulness because our lifestyle changes or our candidate is not there or we don't have the same rights that we had before or we're paying too much in taxes or our community is falling apart. Wickedness is running rampant through the land. That's nothing new. Most of you probably hated history in school. I taught it. I dealt with that every day. But one, the big lesson is what? Man is sinful, and there's going to be messes anywhere and everywhere, and even some... Great peace is not going to last that long. We enjoy it. We root for it. We try to work for it. We try to help our communities. We try to help people. We do all that, but it's in his name for his purposes, not so that we'll be better off and just be able to do what we want to do. And there's a big difference there in motivation and caring and being grateful to the Lord for it. So we can't just give up either. Whatever our situation, God's people know that the time will come when the Davidic king will institute the justice of Hebron throughout the earth. Think of it like that. Now, don't go around today after lunch and walk up to somebody and say, you remind me of someone. I think his name was Bayanoth. Are you rehab? Unless you're just having fun with your family members. You know what? Knowing that that time will come when the Davidic king will institute the justice of Hebron throughout the earth, that's a terrifying concept to some people, and it's a very comforting truth to others, and I hope the others is us. Okay, let's think about this in closing. You've got to have the people straight to do this. Abner showed us that no power can overcome the kingdom of God. 
What did Joab show us? Joab showed us that no foolishness can thwart the kingdom of God. Remember, Joab took it all into his hands, wanted vengeance for his brother. And Baana and Rechab show us that no injustice can establish the kingdom of God. We need to pray. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you again humbled by your word. It's becoming clearer and clearer as we go through these Old Testament books how much how much this points us to the Messiah that came and we look back and see that it's Christ. And Lord, I guess the issue for our hearts is about whether we're willing to be grateful for you saving us and placing us in Christ now, which means that we belong to you, which means that the way the world treated Christ, if we identify with him, that's what's going to happen to many of us in some form, fashion, different degrees, but we belong to you. And we pray that you'd give us the grace to see how much grace you've given us so that we can live lives of grace. As we preach the truth, there is only one way. It's only through Christ that people can come to know you. That people can be forgiven of their sin. And we pray that we would live as individuals and as a church in such a way that that message would become clearer and clearer. And Lord, we know that we must depend on you as we, as we make these decisions and, and know that we get on this road and go that direction more and more. And so thank you for giving us one another. Thank you for your spirit, which attends your word and which applies it to our hearts and empowers us to live lives before you in the grace of Jesus, your son. We just ask these things in his name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.